Hello, and welcome to another episode of EmigCast. This is Kate Rodman, a third-year medical student at OHSU, and today I'll be discussing a common condition that I personally find very interesting and something that we'll all see regardless of our specialty, and that's strokes. The CDC estimates that almost 800,000 people in the United States experience a stroke each year, so this is definitely a condition that you will be seeing during your rotations. I was lucky enough to rotate with the OHSU stroke team during my neurology core, and they piqued my interest in this field. Because this is a common condition with varying presentations and serious complications, I think it is something we should all be comfortable identifying. Strokes can present in many different ways. A patient may come in with a slam dunk presentation of new onset right arm weakness and aphasia, to which you can confidently tell your attending that this is likely a left MCA stroke. But there are many patients who present with less obvious symptoms. For example, I had a patient who presented after a 15-minute period of confusion and memory deficits that fully resolved, and he had no identifiable deficits on exam. It turns out he had had a small lacunar stroke that was later found on imaging. My goal of this episode is to give you a quick and dirty overview of the physiology, evaluation, and treatment of strokes. I'll include the warning that this is a pretty brief overview, so I won't be touching on many of the more specific syndromes or less common treatments. So what is a stroke? The term stroke actually encompasses multiple pathologies. In its simplest form, a stroke is when blood flow to the brain is interrupted, leading to cellular damage. Ischemic strokes make up the majority of strokes, and they occur when there is a blockage in an artery causing an area of the brain to be deprived of blood. You can reason through many of the common causes of ischemic stroke. For example, Atrial fibrillation is a common cause due to the increased likelihood of forming a thrombus in the left atrium that can then create emboli that enter into cerebral circulation, causing an embolic ischemic stroke. Carotid stenosis is another common cause of ischemic stroke through hypoperfusion. If the vessel is too narrow to provide adequate blood supply to the brain, ischemia occurs. Common presentations of ischemic stroke include sudden numbness or weakness in the face, arm, or leg, especially on just one side of the body. Aphasia is another common presentation. Visual loss, often within a certain distribution. For example, many of us have learned about the pie in the sky, where only a superior visual quadrant is affected. A patient may have sudden difficulty walking, or something as simple as kind of acute dizziness, loss of balance, or coordination. Ischemic strokes classically have localizing signs based on what vessel is affected. As you will need to know for NBME exams, a blockage in the anterior cerebral artery, or ACA, will present differently than in the middle cerebral artery, or MCA. ACAs usually present with lower limb weakness, while MCA presents with upper limb weakness. Localizations is one of the reasons I find strokes so interesting. There are some very unique syndromes that can help you pinpoint the brain lesion. A personal favorite of mine is Gertzman syndrome, which presents when there's a left parietal lesion, and a patient will present with agraphia, acalculia, finger agnosia, and the inability to distinguish left from right. I actually got to test a patient for this, which I thought was really cool. There are a lot of syndromes, so I'm not gonna go through them all, but I recommend at least knowing some of the basic stroke syndromes prior to your neurology clerkship, and they will definitely come up on your board exams. Okay, back to types of strokes. 
There are also hemorrhagic strokes, which are less common than ischemic strokes and are broken down into further categories of epidural, subdural, subarachnoid, and intraparenchymal. I won't get into the traumatic hemorrhages such as epidural or subdural hematomas because their workup and management is a little different. You do need to remember that they are neurologic emergencies that typically require neurosurgical intervention. Instead, I will be touching on some of the spontaneous intracerebral hemorrhages. Common causes of hemorrhagic stroke are hypertensive vasculopathy and cerebral amyloid angiopathy. Less common etiologies include arteriovenous malformations, tumors, and vasculitides. Risk factors understandably include being on anticoagulation or antithrombotic therapy, as well as hypertension, excessive drinking, amphetamine, or cocaine use. Hypertensive hemorrhages occur in penetrator arteries that branch off of larger arteries in cerebral circulation. These small penetrating arteries are more likely to be susceptible to the effects of hypertension and cause lacunar infarctions within deeper brain structures such as the putamen and thalamus. Hemorrhages due to amyloid, on the other hand, are usually found within the cerebral lobes and are common in older adults. The amyloid deposition weakens vessels' walls to make, making them prone to bleeding. Presentation of hemorrhagic stroke are not as clear-cut as ischemic strokes and will depend on the structure affected. So, next up, what do you do when you suspect a stroke? When you do your precursory chart review before walking into the patient's room, there are a few things you should check first. Look at their glucose. Hypoglycemia can present as altered mental status and coma. It may be confused for a possible stroke. This only takes a second and it can prevent you from working up a patient for stroke if what they really need is glucose. Also, very important to make sure that if there is a patient on your list who you suspect of having a stroke, to tell your attending immediately. This is because a stroke code needs to be called, which will notify neurology and interventional teams. Also, look at their med rack for important medications, such as anticoagulants that will put them at increased risk of bleeding. And as always, review vitals. As I just mentioned, hypertension is a risk factor for hemorrhagic stroke. After finishing your quick chart review, evaluate the patient. The first thing you want to determine is when the patient's last known normal was. This is the last time that someone else saw the patient at their baseline. This is very important because certain interventions, such as TPA, must happen within a specific time frame of onset. This means that if the patient woke up altered and the last time they were seen was the night before, that becomes their last known normal and they are already out of window for TPA. After you establish last known normal, Perform a proper history, including detailed medical history looking for things such as aneurysms, drug use, uncontrolled hypertension, AFib, and previous neurological events. Then perform your NIH stroke scale. This has multiple parts, so it's often helpful to print one out prior to entering the patient's room, or if you have a computer in the room, you can pull up an online version. The stroke scale looks at motor and sensory function, recall, language, ability to understand and follow commands, vision, dysarthria, inattention. Altogether, it has 11 parts and scored from 0 to 42, with higher scores meaning more deficits. It's important to do this for not only documentation, but 
So you do not look down when neurology arrives or calls you because they're going to want to know how the patient scored and what their specific deficits are. Which segues to an important part. When you do speak to neurology, you need to be able to tell them the last known normal, the NIH stroke scale and where the patients gain points, and ideally you'd also know if they're on anticoagulation and pertinent histories like stroke risk factors. Unfortunately, how much information you gather depends on the patient's level of awareness and their ability to communicate, which may be impaired in these situations. All right, back to the patient. You've taken their history, examined them, you've considered your differential, which should include things like hypoglycemia, migraines, seizures, since post-ictal phases can appear stroke-like, drug or alcohol intoxication, it's good to run a UDS if you're concerned about this, or things like Wernicke's encephalopathy. Even if you're positive it's a stroke, you should always have a differential in mind, and you never know when your attending might put you on the spot and ask about what you're considering. At some point during this process, the patient will get a non-con head CT to identify infarct, first hemorrhage. You can get an MRI, but CT is preferred due to its widespread availability quick scan time, and reliability for detecting hemorrhage. So what's next? Well, this depends on the etiology of the stroke and to some extent depends on your facility. If it is an ischemic stroke, you can give TPA if it's within a specific window of last known normal. TPA stands for tissue plasminogen activator, and it is a protein involved in fibrinolysis. You will also hear recombinant TPA, such as Alteplase, refer referred to as TPA. The goal of TPA is to break up the clot causing the ischemia. You want to emphasize that this is only for an ischemic stroke. You do not want to be giving a fibrinolytic to someone who is hemorrhaging into their brain. It's good to be aware that there are debates about TPA's use. It needs to be used within three to four and a half hours of the patient's last known normal. Which time parameter is used depends on your institution. These timelines are somewhat precariously based on trials that showed that patients who received TPA within an early time frame were more likely to be alive with less disability at three months. But there were significant risks as well. Patients who received TPA were significantly more likely to have an intracranial hemorrhage. The American College of Emergency Physicians offered a level B recommendations on TPA which reflect moderate clinical certainty that TPA should be offered with, um, within three hours of last known normal in acute ischemic stroke and can be offered within four and a half hours to carefully selected patients. There are also many contraindications for TPA, including age, pregnancy, recent head trauma, etc. ND Calc has a nice list of these, which I think everyone should look over prior to discussing TPA. After deciding to give or not to give TPA, there are other in interventions to consider. At OHSU, my home institution, we perform thrombectomies. This means we intervene in the brain with a stent retriever to mechanically unblock the vessel. They are performed on blockages of large vessels and unfortunately cannot be used for some of the smaller vasculature. Thrombectomies are typically only performed at major hospitals, so oftentimes patients are flown in from other areas in order to have the procedure performed. You may hear this referred to as drip and ship because you start them on TPA and get them to an angiosuite as soon as possible. 
At OHSU, we will perform thrombectomies up to 24 hours after last known normal, but this time frame also changes from facility to facility. I have been lucky enough to observe thrombectomies, and it is amazing to watch a patient who comes in with a severe deficit recover rapidly once the clot removed. However, it is important to note that thrombectomies are not always successful. Okay, on to management of hemorrhagic stroke, which, as I've mentioned, is different than management for ischemia. You cannot use TPA. If you even mention it in regards to a patient with blood on their head CT, your attending will look at you like you're crazy. Instead, you try to control the cause of hemorrhage. This includes reversing anticoagulation. Helping patients on anticoagulants to clot is important. Control the hypertension, as severe elevations in BP can worsen hemorrhage. You can have a goal of lowering systolic blood pressure to 140 or below, maybe a little higher in patients who are severely hypertensive as you wanna be careful not to overcorrect them. You also need to manage intracranial pressure. Simple interventions involve things like elevating the head of the bed, and providing mild sedation. In severe cases of acute ICP elevation or life-threatening mass effect, osmotic therapy such as mannitol can be used. Inducing hyperventilation also lowers ICP by inducing cerebral vasoconstriction. For hemorrhagic strokes, surgery may be required to relieve compression. This may entail an open craniotomy, but there are new and less invasive techniques becoming available. Okay, and that's it. Hopefully this overview of physiology, evaluation, and management of acute strokes comes in handy while on your neurology or emergency medicine rotations. Stroke management is a very engaging field with a lot of innovation, so I encourage anyone going into emergency medicine to keep on top of the evolving treatment options. Thanks for listening.